0: This is KJZZ News, your listener-supported public radio station. I'm Tiara Vianne, and here are this week's stories you don't want to miss. Thanks for listening. For the week of February 20th, 2023, here are some top stories. The State Bar of Arizona confirmed it's received two complaints against former Attorney General Mark Brnovich related to reports that he concealed records debunking election fraud claims. Ben Giles reports.
1: A spokesman for the State Bar said the agency received two complaints against Brnovich on Wednesday. Those followed reports Brnovich concealed official records that dismissed wide-ranging claims of vote tampering and fraud. That's according to records released Wednesday by new Democratic Attorney General Chris Mays. The complaints come amid calls by some officials, including Democratic Secretary of State Adrian Fontes, for Bernovich to be disbarred. He made material misrepresentations uh, to apparently advance some political something or other, and uh, that, that, that has be, he has to be held accountable for that. The state bar would not detail the exact nature of the complaints or say who filed them. Ben Giles, KJZZ News, Phoenix.
0: In Science News. Spam emails and social media scams provide regular reminders of how online behavior can be tracked and used against us, with varying degrees of harm. But some data privacy invasions are far more up close and personal. From our Arizona Science Desk, Nicholas Kerbis reports.
1: Ideally everyone would have trusted friends or family to help them through the vulnerable processes of surgery and recovery. Anne, still fairly new in town, didn't. So she placed her trust in a co-worker she occasionally dated.
2: At the beginning of the year, I had had a major surgery and he helped a lot with that and was very uh, interested in showing how much I could count on him and how much he wanted to be a part of my life.
1: Anne sensed her friend viewed their relationship as more serious than she did and says she told him so. Still, when she needed a follow-up surgery, he insisted on helping out. Tired, worried about her mother's health, which also meant her sister was unavailable, she agreed.
2: So we went to the hospital and I just gave him my purse to hold, as you do when you're in surgery. And then I was in the hospital for several days.
1: But her friend never stopped by. When she returned home, she learned why.
2: He had had my keys to be able to get my mail and things like that. And there was a note on my bed saying, I have to let you go. Uh, I can't be with you if you're involved with someone else.
1: The man she trusted had gone through her phone.
2: I didn't even have a lock on my phone because I, I guess I'm a very trusting person, but also I'm not anyone that lends my phone to anyone or leaves it around. It never occurred to me that that would happen.
1: Perhaps it's just as well that it did you have a law professor, Jane Bambauer.
3: Big red flag for a person being a good relationship partner. It's probably also illegal, at least under civil law in most states.
1: At issue, intrusion upon seclusion, a common law tort recognized in Arizona that lets people sue those who invade areas reasonably expected to be private.
3: It's about somebody taking extraordinary measures to discover and observe for the first time for them some private details about another person.
1: Bambauer thinks most people leave the courts out of it.
3: We don't see a lot of cases like that because the more important thing is that the relationship breaks down. Your
4: phone
1: night. Your phone Some might blame Anne or call her naive, yet the pandemic shows how stress, illness, fatigue, and isolation can beat down our defenses.
2: I think I just assumed the best in people, that they're not going to do things that to me are just basic human
1: kindness. Human nature often factors into intrusion and influence. From catfishing to quarter slots, technology provides a mere prop or tool. Psychology dupes the mark. Bruce Schneier teaches cybersecurity policy at the Harvard Kennedy School.
3: If the tech were different, it would be the same story with different tech. If there was no tech, it would be the same story with no tech. The story is the friend.
1: The story is also social norms. A 2020 Pew Center survey shows that although most Americans condemn thumbing through a partner's phone, one-third endorse the behavior. Shifts in community standards can have ramifications for privacy intrusion laws.
3: You have to prove that there is an intrusion that most people would consider outrageous. So it crosses the line for the typical person in the community.
1: Some as-yet-unlegislated conduct may fall under prevailing laws. Take, for example, doxing, maliciously publishing someone's personal data, often to expose them to persecution.
3: Even if we didn't have a specific statute for the electronic communications environment, the general purpose harassment laws should apply fairly comfortably in these contexts.
1: Although some ridicule the internet's outsized share of over-sharers, even the most uninhibited YouTubers curate their content.
3: We share some things that a generation or two ago would have been scandalous, but there might be other things that people, especially young people, are more reluctant to share than ever before, like political ideology.
1: Security is possible, but not infallible or static, and it entails costs to convenience, to openness, to faith in others. Somehow, we must balance privacy against the quality of life offered by openness.
3: I can give you a bunch of tech things to do, but that's not going to solve the problem. The problem is we have no choice but to trust somebody.
1: But trusting someone often means trusting their judgment, too. Anne's friend, cheated on by a former spouse, thought his intrusion was warranted. Someone once said, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, but maybe it's more fitting to say, I trust everyone, I just don't trust the devil inside them. Nicholas Skirbis, KJZZ News, Phoenix.
0: And you can find all three parts in this series on our website, kjzz.org. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. In Fronteras News, Governor Katie Hobbs has removed all the board members of a binational nonprofit meant to foster ties between Arizona and Sonora. From our Fronteras desk in Hermosillo, Kendall Bless reports on this unusual move.
5: Hobbs has fired every member of the governor-appointed Arizona-Mexico Commission Board of Directors. The commission works to strengthen business, trade, and cultural ties with neighboring Sonora, which has its own cross-border council.
6: I'm telling you, we're the envy of lots
2: of border states who don't have this This relationship with their counterparts.
5: Jaime Chamberlain is a produce distributor in Nogales, Arizona, and served as commission secretary until he was dismissed in an email last Friday. It was a shock. He says many members had been on the board for years, even decades, and it's their relationships with Sonoran counterparts that make the commission so successful. Still, he acknowledges that Hobbs is within her rights and says he'll reapply, something Hobbs' office, as all previous members, are welcome to do as the governor sets a new direction for the commission. Kendall Blust, KJ's,
0: In business news, the Scottsdale City Council has unanimously approved a proposal to provide water to the Rio Verde foothills community, but it would require Maricopa County to help foot the bill and deliver it. Jill Ryan has details.
5: Rio Verde Foothills has been without a water source since the start of the year. Scottsdale cited the ongoing drought as the reason for stopping water delivery after two decades of service. Scottsdale wants Maricopa County to agree to a temporary fix that, if the Board of Supervisors approves, would last two to three years. Rio Verde resident Meredith DeAngelis says she's thrilled the city is working on a solution, but...
2: I know that in here, the city is obtaining the 600-acre feet of raw water from a third-party source, and they have yet to have secured that water. And my concern is, what are they doing and how is that going to pan out?
5: City Council member Solange Whitehead explained it this way to KJZZ's The Show.
3: So Scottsdale's water is sourced from a number of, you know, different areas, and we feel confident that we can increase just enough to provide this community with water. The water haul price would triple,
5: and Scottsdale would additionally charge Maricopa County $1,000 a month. Whitehead says there is room for negotiations. Jill Ryan, KJZZ News, Phoenix.
0: And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Now from KJZZ Original Productions. We dive into the colorful world of Lucha Libre. Here's the show's co-host, Lauren Gilger.
4: Lucha Libre wrestlers are larger than life. Dressed in bright colors and signature masks, they embody their characters and have captured the imaginations of the Mexican people for generations. Now an expansive exhibition at the ASU Art Museum explores the vast world of Lucha Libre, gathering works from artists who have been influenced by the wrestling culture from around the world. It was curated by Julio Morales, and he gave me a tour of the show recently. When you walk up to the exhibition, you're greeted by a wall covered in hanging masks. They're bright, colorful, and as Morales told me, they each tell a story.
6: These masks actually came from Mexico City. And, you know, I wanted an urban feel uh, as maybe you're in the arena, by the arenas where they wrestle. And essentially, in many places in urban spaces in Mexico City, it's very common to see 60 masks just on a corner, you know, being sold. And I wanted that kind of color and that kind of uh, feeling as well, you know, bring the street into the exhibition space. The masks are actually made by someone named El Fish, Mm -hmm. and he actually is a fishmonger. I met him at the market where he has his fish stall, Uh and at night he actually makes semi-professional masks for people who want to go on to be wrestlers.
4: (laughs) So it's just like a personal acquaintance, and now he's in ASU's art museum?
6: Exactly, and these are all his designs, so none of these are basically uh, designs from well-known wrestlers these are designs that he makes on his own yeah.
4: so walking into the gallery here there are some tvs here kind of old old-fashioned looking tvs like i had when i was a kid here on the right what are these
6: so this is artwork from the late 1990s early 2000s by a really amazing artist from mexico city called carlos a morales And he's most known for his butterfly pieces, say, at the Phoenix Art Museum, 30,000 pieces. That's him. That's him. But this is his first major artwork in in which he created two wrestlers Mm -hmm. after his own name. And they would wrestle against each other. And so from being an art project, it actually became a real, uh, they became real wrestlers. And they had seven wrestling matches from Tijuana, Mexico to Denmark and essentially that was his first big project and so it's a series of videos that he documented uh, the wrestlers and and himself becoming the wrestler.
4: So explain the significance of the mask in Lucha Libre Wrestling. Like that's kind of what separates it from a lot of other wrestling you might think of in my mind at least.
6: And I think to talk about that we, we can talk about the work of Christian Pineda. So here in this image you can see a mix between pre-Hispanic costumes that reference the jaguar, jaguar dance, jaguar fight. And essentially, you can kind of see that Lucha Libre also takes form and influence by um, indigenous culture in Mexico. And so here he mixes in the indigenous imagery with the contemporary Lucha Libre mask. So you can see a lot of the masks take their design motif from Aztecs and from Mayans. And here you can see the silk screens, where he's implemented both designs together, the ancient and the traditional and the contemporary now.
4: How far back does this go? This history.
6: Well, this history goes back, you know, hundreds of years. But Lucha Libre really began in the 1930s.
4: That's still a very long time ago. It has rich history, it sounds like.
6: Exactly, it does.
4: And one that sounds a little surprising. I've I've read about this. There seems to be some social justice aspect to this, especially in the history, which is not something I don't think that's apparent when you think about Lucha Libre.
6: So in regards to social justice, one prime example is Super Barrio. And Super Barrio was a community activist that dressed up as a luchador. And here you can see, we had his um, suit remade. And you can see all, all the way down to his beautiful boots that you know he actually uh, was out protesting with people. So he was a human rights advocate. And here are photographs from the early 1980s of him protesting with people in the street in Mexico City. And actually in 1988, he actually uh, ran for president of Mexico. He's incredibly well-known and loved in Mexico.
4: So this is is culturally pervasive, it sounds like.
6: It is. And, you know, Lucha Libre started as, um, as, a, as a sport, as a spectacle, entertainment for everyone, meaning that everyone could afford to come to it. It crosses boundaries. It crosses economic boundaries. The last time I went to Mexico City and I saw a fight, I mean, a wrestling match is I had English tourists in front of me, a grandfather with a granddaughter and five artists. And so it's a huge mix of different cultures that still champion Lucha Libre and are so entertained by it. But when I talk about Lucha Libre, I talk about three P's. That is popular culture, it's political, and it's poetic. And so within those three P's, uh, a lot of contemporary artists have been influenced by Lucha Libre. So here, this is an artist, David Grummer, who lives in Mexico City, grew up in Los Angeles, but his family is indigenous to Mexico, and essentially he does this work with his mother. So they do this beautiful embroiling of the luchador outfits, but they add all these different indigenous decorations to it. He is also also an openly gay artist, so this is also about queering the luchador because, of course, we always think of luchadores to be super macho and so on and you know lucha libre is much more open they've also influenced contemporary artists they've also as i said struggle they've also helped queer uh, communities to find their voice as well through lucha libre and the characterization of lucha libre
4: what does it mean to you putting this together and having kind of learned some things you probably didn't know but also this is something it sounds like that was close to you as a as a kid
6: well, it's just that. It's, it's like this strange kind of homecoming where I know, I feel, and I know some of this work or sport because I, I saw it as a kid, but then now as a curator and an artist, a lot of my favorite artists are in the exhibition, actually, <laughs> that actually had been doing work based on Lucha Libre or the influence of Lucha Libre in contemporary culture. Mm-hmm. And so there's one more floor, actually.
4: Let's go see it. Let's go see it.
6: This is an an amazing uh, portrait uh, from 1980 of the wrestler Blue Demon, and he's dressed in a white three-piece suit, and it's just a beautiful photograph that is taken by Lourdes Grobet, who um, one of the greatest photographers in Mexico, and she actually died this year, and we were in communication with her until four months before the show would open, she died, and she was going to loan us 50 photographs, (laughs) so that didn't happen. And so we ended up borrowing a couple of other works, but she's really phenomenal, and and we dedicated the exhibition to her, actually. So she spent, you know, 40 years documenting female wrestlers along with male wrestlers. And then right next to her is Graciela Iturbide, another phenomenal photographer from Mexico. And here again, when we're talking about indigeneity and contemporary culture, this photograph is a great example because it's an indigenous small girl about eight or nine years old, and on one side of her face she has an, an a, a, uh, indigenous mask mm-hmm. that's called Los Viejitos, which means the dance of the old people. And she's wearing in front the blue demon mask. Mm-hmm. And then she has other contemporary and indigenous um, outfits as well with this photograph. Yeah.
4: And there's the mask itself, the blue.
6: This is the, the actual mask from 19, 1980. So this is actually the mask that he wore in that famous portrait.
4: And we have to talk about the sounds we're hearing in the background. This is a video, (laughs) let's go see.
6: So this is a video by Javier Barrios. And basically he collaborated and worked with a wrestler and uh, his name is Hellboy. Mm -hmm. And essentially he talked to him about who his worst enemy is in the wrestling mat, in the wrestling ring, but also to him personally, and of course it's himself. Like we all know, we are our worst enemy. And so basically what he's doing is that he's wrestling with his own shadow. The sound is very, very loud, so you could hear the sound of the mat, the sound of the ring itself, and the sort of agonizing way in which wrestlers put their bodies through.
4: thank you so much for showing me around. Thank you. That was my conversation with ASU Art Museum senior curator Julio Morales.
0: Lucha Libre Beyond the Arenas is on display through May. And finally, in education news. For decades, Dungeons & Dragons has been the trailblazer of role-playing games or RPGs. D&D was in the news recently when its publisher and owner moved to tighten its copyright. Backlash from fans and content creators was swift, and the proposal was walked back. Jill Ryan took a look at the issue and the appeal of unscripted role-playing.
5: Think of RPGs as a group exercise in creative writing. Players find themselves in worlds where, with loose guidance, they are able to make their own choices to navigate and create story within the game. Popular shows like The Big Bang Theory and Stranger Things have brought one RPG in particular into the mainstream. Dungeons & Dragons has been around since the 1970s, All it takes to play is a handbook, dice, and imagination. D&D has inspired countless fans to create their own fantastical characters and RPGs. Some content creators have made a living playing the game online. But last month, D&D's publisher and owner, Wizards of the Coast and Hasbro, stirred up the worldwide fan base by attempting to change its open gaming license. Noah Downs is an attorney who specializes in intellectual property. He also co-authored the petition calling for D&D to keep its original license, which lets people create and profit from derivative work based on D&D's handbooks. The new proposed license could have given D&D partial ownership of all future content from third-party creators.
1: they said that this would only affect 20 or so creators, when in reality, it would affect tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of creators.
5: Down says if Wizards of the Coast and Hasbro hadn't backed off, they likely would have faced litigation and also a possible obligation to redefine copyright law.
1: Game mechanics are not copyrightable. So... The gray area becomes when game mechanics are so tied to a particular system that it's it's hard to distinguish what is the lore and setting and building blocks of that system from the mechanics themselves.
5: But why does this all matter? Well, RPGs are not only a tool for fantastical escape. Role-playing is a growing technique in the worlds of business and academia. At Arizona State University, students of at least one professor play an RPG for credit. Sarah Amira de la Garza teaches at the Hugh Down School of Human Communication. Her D&D-inspired game takes students to the world of DiGlossia, where they interact with the RPG's most nefarious obstacles cognitive dissonance and prejudice. De La Garza says intercultural communication concepts are usually taught one by one, but in the real world, everything is happening at once.
3: We put a lot of responsibility on the individual students to somehow sort of figure out how all this goes together when they're in actual real life situations. And I would say it would be the remarkable student that capable of doing that at a very deep level.
5: In her game, each student plays a character that has appeared on the island of Diglossia from their own lands and have to deal with each other despite polarizing differences. Diglossia itself is a linguistics term, meaning the coexistence of two varieties of the same language. And to De La Garza, culture... Is a language.
3: We oftentimes don't realize that everything that we do is encoded, and that those who understand the culture can read behavior, which is a language. And if you can't understand the culture, then you misunderstand and you misspeak. Through your own behavior. She says
5: absorbing the theories of intercultural communication could lessen everyday discomfort and also address more systemic issues. She says role play helps to get people in a different frame of mind. Connor Leshner is a former student of De La Garza and a current PhD candidate in social psychology, personality, and health. He studies how and why we represent ourselves as we do in digital spaces. And he puts forth the idea that in the digital world, from social media to VR, when we create an avatar, we are role-playing. The way to sort of define this, especially in like the more digital terms of VR is this idea called body transfer. Body transfer is this idea of we have our actual selves, and then when we go into the VR setting, we are transferring our consciousness to a different body. And as a result of that, even if we make an avatar that is exactly the same as us, we aren't us. De La Garza is organizing a panel on how role-playing, gaming, and VR are being used to teach communication theories. If accepted, it would be a part of this year's National Communication Association Convention. Jill Ryan, KJZZ News, Phoenix.